Welcome to the very first episode of the Sham Sharma Show. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about the Gujarat election, the alcohol ban in Bihar, the Taj Mahal controversy, and the Kurdish referendum, among many other things. Stay tuned. Welcome, welcome to the very first episode of the Sham Sharma Show. Thank you for watching. I appreciate you. Now, our very first story of the day is going to be about the Gujarat election. Now, the Gujarat election is seen as a very important election from particularly from the point of the general election coming up in 2019 for a variety of reasons. Number one, the Gujarat government has been run by the BJP for almost the past two decades. So there's a lot of anti-incumbency against the government, as you'd expect from a government that's been ruling for 20 years, pretty much. Now the second point, obviously, is that if the Congress can score an upset win in this in this state, it's going to have huge ramifications, at least, you know, symbolically, because firstly, it's the home state of the Prime Minister Narendra Modi. And if the BJP government is defeated in Gujarat, it's a pretty big symbolic win for the Congress, particularly when looking at the 2019 general elections as well, because they haven't had a lot of luck when it comes to elections so far. So pulling off an upset win in Gujarat will be absolutely massive for them. As part of the anti-incumbency, there's been a lot of things that have been going on in Gujarat against the BJP government as well. One of the primary things has been the Patidar agitation that has been carried out by this gentleman called Hardik Patel, whose Patidar Anamat Andolan Samiti has been asking for reservation for Patidars in government jobs. Now, it's a very tricky situation when it comes to this in Gujarat because there's another leader called Alpesh Thakur, who is the head of the OBC Ekta Manch and also the leader of the Thakur Sena. Now, these guys already have reservation in government jobs and the Patidars here are now asking for reservation in government jobs as well. And this is going to be a tricky affair because obviously they are on two different sides of this demand. The Patidars obviously want to have those government reservations and the OBCs do not want them to have those reservations because if the Patidars do get the reservations then they will cut into the reservations that the OBCs have already. Now the problem with that is creating a separate quota for the Patidars will take the reservation percentage beyond 50% that is allowed by the Supreme Court at this moment. So it's a very tricky situation. Now, the Congress has obviously reached out to all of these people because all of these people are against the government at the moment because they feel like the government has let them down or has not treated them fa fairly in many situations. And the Dalits certainly have cause to feel that way. So the government, uh, so the Congress leadership has recently met with Alpesh Thakur, who has now joined the Congress for this election. They've also met up with Jignesh Mevani, who is a leader in Dalit politics. And finally, they also recently met with Hardik Patel, who has now presented a list of demands for the Congress government. One of the demands obviously being that he would like reservation for the Patidar community. And he has given Congress till the 3rd of November to make up their minds about whether or not these demands will be accepted by the Congress. And his joining the party is dependent among those demands being accepted. So it's a very interesting situation forming in Gujarat right now. Now, there's a lot of different things that will factor into this. One of the factors, obviously, is the different communities that are that are on different sides of this whole reservation question. Now, another thing that could be the problem is that Congress at the moment doesn't really have a chief ministerial face or a candidate in Gujarat. Now, in my opinion, that can be a real problem for the Congress party in Gujarat because BJP recently made that same mistake in Bihar where they did not have 
a designated chief ministerial candidate for the party in the Bihar elections. And because there was no clear candidate and JDU and RJD had clear candidates set up in the elections, I feel like that was a big mistake on BJP's part when it came to the Bihar elections. And I feel that Congress might be making that same mistake when it comes to the Gujarat elections. Secondly, Narendra Modi is still very, very popular in Gujarat. And BJP, even though Narendra Modi is not running for chief minister position in Gujarat, BJP is still the party of Narendra Modi at least according to many Gujaratis, so, so at least they have that going for them. There was also a recent poll done by a Lokniti Center for Studies of Developing Societies which showed an increase in 30 points of the vote share for the BJP in this year's election. A lot of people who support the BJP, a lot of people in the BJP might see this as very good news, but I'm not 100% sure on this yet because a couple of years ago, the Congress party actually had some pretty big wins in the Zilla Parishad and the Taluk Parishad two years ago where they got bulk of the votes and they did very well in those elections. They have been doing the groundwork. There's a lot of in anti-incumbency against the government at this moment, as you would expect. And there are also these various groups like Alpesh Thakur and Hardik Patel and Jignesh Mevani who are opposed to the government right now. A silver lining for the BJP is that Alpesh Thakur and Hardik Patel's goals seem to be incongruent with each other. Now it's gonna be very interesting to see if, if and what Congress do with Hardik Patel's demands and what's going to come out of that whole episode. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Now, recently, several Patidar leaders had come in and joined the BJP, which the BJP obviously was very happy about and they made a whole big thing about it. But recently, some Patidar leaders have left the party saying that the party tried to bribe them. Now, that's a pretty grave accusation to be made against the party as well, because, you know, according to Modi's whole sentiment of Nakaunga, Nakanedunga, that sentiment does not really fit very well with the accusations that have been that are being made against the BJP right now. So I definitely do think that the BJP has a fight on their hands when it comes to this election. I still think they might sneak it, but it'll definitely be a very interesting election to watch, particularly keeping an eye on the 2019 general elections. All right, moving on to Taj Mahal. Now, some people said some stuff and some people got mad. I'm going to tell you all about it. So basically what kicked off this whole controversy is that Sangeet Som, who is an MLA of the BJP, said that the Taj Mahal is not part of Indian culture and it should not be revered the way it is right now. What he went on to say was, what history are we talking about? The man who built Taj Mahal imprisoned his father. He wanted to massacre Hindus. If this is history, then it is very unfortunate and we will change this history, I guarantee you. And then Anil Vij, who's another BJP minister from Haryana, chimed in and he said that, it's a beautiful graveyard. Now that second part, it's it's not really, it's not technically incorrect because I, I know it's not a graveyard, but it has graves and it is beautiful. I know it's a mausoleum, but it's got graves and it's pretty. So technically that's not inc incorrect and I don't think people should be as bad about that one. But the first comments by Sangeet Som obviously created this huge storm and a lot of people came out and say, you know, these Hindu nationalists trying to erase all kinds of history and so on and so forth. And obviously Nanil Kohli from the BJP, who is the national spokesperson for the party, came out and he said, that is his individual view. Taj Mahal is an important part of our history. It's a part of incredible India. What happened in history cannot be erased, but at least it can be well-written history. Now, I actually don't find anything wrong with that statement that Nalin Kohli made. And before I go any further, Sangeet Som actually came out and gave a clarification to what he was saying as well. He said, I don't oppose the Taj Mahal. It's a beautiful heritage. I oppose the Mughals who built it and how they've been portrayed in history. 
And I think that does have a point. Because for very long, and even when I was in school, I remember how the Mughals were portrayed in books, in textbooks, in schools, in cinema, as these wonderful, benevolent rulers who came and who ruled India justly and were always so nice and things of that nature. And I, and I don't really think that that's 100% true. Obviously, some Mughal rulers were better than other Mughal rulers and some Mughal rulers were worse than some Mughal rulers. And I get that. And I think there does need to be a nuance in here. It's not completely black and white. However, I, I do think that it is important to teach kids about what some of these rulers did do. I don't think all of these rulers were wonderful people who were just trying to, you know, treat all Hindus like they were treating all the Muslims. I think a lot of these rulers saw Hindus as second-class citizens and treated Hindus like second-class citizens. And I'm not saying that this uh, knowing your history means that you necessarily have to hate those people back then. You know, you might hate those people back then, but the Muslims today are not the Muslims of the 1400s and the 1500s. The Muslims today had nothing to do with what those people did back in the day. So we also have to remember that we don't treat the Muslims today by what their ancestors did. We treat them by what they're doing today. And secondly, here's my two cents on this whole issue. My advice to the right, which by the way, I'm a part of, I consider myself a part of the right, so to say. My advice to the right would be pick your battles. Pick your battles. Know which fight is the right fight to fight and know which fight isn't. This fight is not the right fight to fight. The Taj Mahal is a huge moneymaker for India. It's a huge boost for the tourism industry of UP and India in general. So many people from around the world come to see the Taj Mahal every single year. It generates so much revenue for people and it generates so much work and employment for people that work around that area as well. And number two, whatever it is, it's, it's part of our history. What I'm basically trying to say is it's not even the most heinous monument constructed. For example, the best way I can explain this is I was completely in support in changing the name of Aurangzeb Road. Now, Aurangzeb was a true bigot. He was a guy who considered Hindus to be second-grade citizens and who imposed the jazia back on the Hindus and who murdered many Hindus and who murdered many non-Muslims simply because they were non-Muslims. So to change the name of Aurangzeb Street to something better, I'm definitely in support of. That's a fight worth fighting because Aurangzeb was a piece of garbage. This fight, however, is a different fight. This is the wrong fight to pick. There are many other worthy causes out there that deserve the right's attention and I don't think this should be the top of the list. The Taj Mahal, for whatever case it may be, it is still a beautiful monument and it is also a huge tourism moneymaker for India. I particularly don't even think that Sangeet Som meant meant that sentiment. I mean, he did clarify himself later and I think what he said later did make a lot more sense than what he said in the beginning. That's exactly what I'm saying as well. So I think this issue shouldn't be much of an issue because I don't think this issue is as bad as a lot of people are making it out to be. Moving on. All right, the next news story we're going to be talking about is the alcohol ban in Bihar. Now that's, that's always been a topic that's pissed me off a little bit particularly because I am from Bihar and this alcohol ban, I don't see this much more than just simple virtue signaling for votes by the current government over there. 
My problem with bands like these tend to be that they don't really solve a problem. And in fact, they create problems of their own. Now, one of the problems that a band like this would create is an illicit black market for alcohol. Some, that's something that Bihar has already had major problems with. And this is something that's, again, going to give rise to more black market and alcohol mafia problems in the future. States like Uttar Pradesh and states like Jharkhand, what they will do is they'll set up, or people in those states, what they will do is they will set up alcohol shops on the border of Bihar and people could just drive up to those states, get the, get the alcohol, drive back into Bihar. That's literally how simple it is. So not only are they missing out on the revenue that they could from taxing this alcohol, they're also then creating this whole other black market for alcohol where people will consume this liquor and people will get ill or worse. One example of this problem has recently come up in Rohtas in Bihar where a couple of days news broke that five people had died from consuming illicit alcohol. This is exactly the problem that I was talking about. The argument that is given for a ban like this is that this ban will help with the drinking problem in the state and it's good for women because you know men don't get as drunk and then they don't come home and and abuse the women or you know things of that nature now i feel like this is giving alcohol way too much responsibility and taking responsibility away from those assholes that are beating the women so rather than having harsher punishments for those people or rather than even educating those people when it comes to responsible drinking behavior and how to handle your alcohol and where to buy the alcohol from how to better teach people how to deal with alcohol rather than having programs like that by the government just they just put this blanket ban and say hey look at that we've solved this problem it's because educating people and teaching people how to handle alcohol where to buy alcohol from what not to do when you go home to your wife these things they take time and the government doesn't want to take the time to take care of those problems what they do is just have this ban and then use it as fodder in the elections so i'm completely against bans like these and I think the sooner the ban goes away, the better. Now we're going to be covering a little bit of international news. Shinzo Abe, who is the Prime Minister of Japan, has recently held a snap election for his re-election. And that gamble seems to have paid off because he has won an absolute majority in his parliament. He has won two-thirds of the parliament's 465 seats, which gives him a clear majority, of course. Now... Why I mention this news is I think that this is really good news for India because Shinzo Abe and Narendra Modi, in my opinion, are cut from very similar cloths in the sense that they're both right-leaning, they're both nationalist leaders, and they're both leaders who are very acutely aware of China's rise in the region. And then they're also very keen to work together with each other to then counteract uh, China's influence in the region as well. So I think this is very good news for India, particularly because avenues for investment for Japan have been drying up as of late. And India is actually in need for investment when it comes to technology and infrastructure. And that's where J Japan has its strengths. And I personally believe that that sort of investment partnership can make India and Japan ideal business partners. Also, like I mentioned before, they're working to counteract China's policy when it comes to it's increasing its influence in the region. So particularly one policy that China has been working on that would worry both India and Japan was the one belt, one road policy. 
Now, in response to that policy, India and Japan together are also launching their own Asia-Africa growth corridor. And of course, also together, they're also working on the Jabahar port in Iran, which is again, I believe, a fantastic way to counteract the presence of both China and Pakistan in the region. So I personally believe that this is actually a very good thing for India, and it also gives a big boost to Narendra Modi's Act East policy. Now, in another bit of international news, recently US-backed forces have taken the city of Raqqa from the Islamic State. Now, earlier in the year, the, the US-backed forces had taken control of Mosul from the Islamic State as well, but Raqqa actually has quite a bit of sy symbolic meaning behind it as well. Raqqa served as the capital of the so-called caliphate of the Islamic State, and even though it's, it's a smaller town than Mosul, it had more prestige value for the Islamic State, so I think retaking Raqqa from the Islamic State actually has quite a big symbolic blow to ISIS as well. One of the parties that has had a huge part to play in liberating parts of Syria and Iraq from ISIS has been this outfit called the Peshmarga. Now, the Peshmarga is the army outfit of the Kurdistan regional government. The Kurdistan regional government is a semi-autonomous area within Iraq. Now the Kurds actually play a very important role in the fight against ISIS and which is why this story gains even more significance. So recently the Kurdistan regional government organized a referendum in which people could vote to separate from Iraq and form an independent country of their own. Now in this vote about 3 million people voted and 93% of the people voted to form an independent Kurdish nation. Now this is very significant and this comes at a very interesting time as well. First of all, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a quick breakdown about who the Kurds really are. So the, Kurd, so the Kurds are an independent ethnic group that live in the Middle East. They consider their homeland to be divided into four countries, so northern Iraq, Syria, Iran and Turkey. And this is why this is significant because Turkey Iraq and Iran have all said that this vote is illegal and that this referendum doesn't mean anything. Now, because the Kurds are an independent ethnic, they consider themselves an independent ethnic group, they've always sought autonomy and they've always sought a homeland of their own. But until the early 1900s, they were part of the Ottoman Empire. After the Ottoman Empire collapsed after the World War, there was a Treaty of Severs. Now, I probably am butchering the name, but it's called the Treaty of Severs. The Treaty of Severs were formally drafted to deal with the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire and the formation of Turkey. And within it, there was also a provision that would provide for a referendum for the Kurdish people. Now, soon after that, there was a nationalist movement carried out by Kemal Ataturk, which formed Turkey the way it is today. Now, what happened and as a result of this revolution is that the old treaty was removed and a new treaty was signed, which was called the Treaty of Lausanne. And under this treaty, there was no provision of a referendum for the Kurdish people and Turkey got control of the entire Anatolian Peninsula. So this is just a brief history of the Kurdish movement and why they've been looking for a homeland of their own for quite a while now. Now ever since this referendum, the countries of Turkey, Iran and Iraq, they've all said that this referendum is illegal and that this referendum doesn't really mean anything. And as a result of this referendum, the Iraqi army has actually attacked some of the positions where the Peshmerga have been. For example, the city of Kirkuk, which the Peshmerga rescued from ISIS a little while ago. Iraq has actually made some inroads into taking back that city from the, from the Kurds 
because that's a very vital city because it produces a lot of oil and obviously whoever controls that city controls the oil. Now, along with Turkey, Iran and Iraq, even the US and Europe does not agree with this referendum because most of those countries in Europe and the US, they see this as rocking the boat at the worst possible time because right now the US-backed forces have made a lot of inroads into ISIS territory and they're very close to defeating ISIS in most of the areas that ISIS still occupies. So obviously with the Kurds now trying to form their own country, the US obviously sees it as a very bad time to make a move. And they also feel that ISIS may gain from this conflict between Peshmerga and the Iraqi forces. Because the referendum was conducted at such an inopportune time, there has been some fallout of it. So Masood Barzani, who was the leader of the Kurdish people has announced that he will be stepping down come November 1st. Obviously, Barzani has taken a lot of flack for conducting this referendum, which a lot of people are now accusing him of betraying the Kurdish people and that losing all the advantage that the Kurds had, in including you know, losing all the territory that gained from uh, Kirkuk and Iraq. And that's created a bit of a flux when it comes to Kurdish leadership because there's no really clear person to lead them right now. So it's a very interesting situation that's developing and that's definitely something that we should be keeping an eye on and that's definitely something that I'll follow up in a future show. Now finally I'd like to finish this show with a feel-good story. Now this is one of the stories that I feel like has kind of gone under the radar a little bit but I think it's a very important story nevertheless and that's about India organizing the under-17 football world cup. Now I remember back in 2010 when India was trying to organize the Commonwealth Games and it was an absolute fiasco. All the way from building all the stadiums, building all the amenities to the insane amounts of corruption that took place in organizing that event and the hotels and the food and the cleanliness, none of that stuff was up to scratch. And I remember that and I remember what an international embarrassment that was for India. And so many people were saying that they wonder if India is ever going to get to host a big event like that again. But, you know, slowly and steadily, under the radar, they applied to host the Under-17 World Cup. They got to host the Under-17 World Cup. And by all accounts, it's been an absolute success. So the FIFA head of competitions, Haim Yarza, again, I'm probably killing this name as well, and I'm sorry, but I think this is how it's pronounced. Haim Yarza said, infrastructure provided for the first ever FIFA tournament was world class and all the teams were happy with the organization. He went on to say, the figures speak for themselves. It's going to be the most attended under 17 World Cup on the field. The matches were of high quality, played in high speed and technically also it was of high class. It has been a fantastic tournament and India has delivered it. It shows that India is a football nation in every sense. That's great. Who knew that we can actually go ahead and organize a fantastic sporting event? He also said all of these stadia are not only of FIFA Under-17 World Cup level, but of senior FIFA World Cup level as well. In every aspect, India can host bigger FIFA events in the future. India should be proud of having these kinds of infrastructure. Again, all of this is really fantastic, and I think it bodes really well for us to be able to host tournaments in the future as well. And I think kudos goes to the sports ministry and the sports minister, Rajivardhan Singh Rathore as well. I think by all accounts, India has done a fantastic job in organizing this tournament. 
everybody seems to be happy with the organization of this tournament as well. And Yarza also said that India had also applied for the Under-20 World Cup and that because he was so happy with the organization of the Under-17 World Cup, he's going to go back and make the case for India for the Under-20 World Cup as well. And this is incredible. The attendance for the final of the Under-17 World Cup was 66,684 people. That is fantastic. That's for a soccer game. Not cricket. That kind of attendance for a football tournament. As a football fan, I cannot tell you how happy that makes me to see that there's a packed stadium for a football game in India. That I, I love it. I just absolutely bloody love it. Now, the sports minister also said that it's a matter of pride that the Under-17 World Cup came to India. It has taken India's importance at the world level to greater heights. Now, the big com competitions and sports which were earlier non-existent in India, are feeling the need to come to this country. And I think that's absolutely fantastic news. It's high time that India took its spot in international competitions. And I think a great way is to start organizing fantastic international competitions. And I think after the success of the Under-17 World Cup, people will see us as a serious sporting country and at least a country that's serious in organizing a fantastic tournament for football as well and i hope this gives football the exposure it deserves in india so essentially that's the feel good story of the day and that's the show as well i hope you like the show we're going to be back tomorrow to again give you a rundown of the top stories of the day and i hope you've enjoyed this episode and if you have please like the show share the show leave a comment and tell me what you thought about it if you agreed with something please let me know if you didn't agree with it please let me know so we can have a dialogue and maybe you know if if i said something that you didn't agree with or you thought that i was wrong tell me none and if it's a sound argument i'll be happy to change my mind and again if you enjoy the show please subscribe to the show it helps the channel it helps me out and i am looking forward to seeing you again tomorrow till then stay healthy stay happy and i'll see you soon